Good evening, everyone. You're listening to KBVR Corvallis. I am the bear on the air. And you just heard a little set of kind of fun, dancey music, because that's the mood in here tonight. Although it doesn't feel like night with all this light out. Uh, that was Hey Mickey. Uh, I have that as Jack Jams. We think it might be by Cindy Lauper. Uh, I guess we could have looked that up in the interim. <laughs> yeah, we could have. We're doing other things in here. It's very busy in the booth. Uh, we also had You're the One That I Want by Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta from Greece. Uh, then we had Higher and Higher by Jackie Wilson. And finally, Wake Up Little Susie by Buddy Holly. Uh, it is that time of the night that uh, we do a little inspiration dissemination. So without further ado, good evening, listeners. It's, what is it? It's March 12th, I think, right? Uh, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. And on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Steve Friedman. And I'm Mackenzie Smith. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or just want to find out more about all of our all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blog. OregonState.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Victoria Drexel from the, is it the, what is it, the Department of... Well, it's the Department of English in the School of Writing, Literature, and Film. Okay, but you're doing a master's in fine arts. Yep, in creative writing. In creative writing. And what more specifically are you doing? Uh, Right now I'm working on my thesis, which is a collection of five pretty unrelated uh, long-form magazine pieces. Okay, so long-form magazine pieces. So this is like when I opened my Nat Geo, it's the one in the middle. Yeah, I mean, hopefully when you open your Nat Geo. <laughs> Instead of uh, when I swipe through my Nat Geo? And yeah. As, is that the opposite, the other version that you're referring to? Or um, hopefully your piece will be in the Nat Geo. Yeah, I was referring to okay. the fact that uh, who gets a Nat Geo? Yeah. Okay, great. So you're a nonfiction writer and you write long form magazine pieces. So tell us um, what does that mean? What are some of the topics you're working on or writing about right now? Yeah. uh, So like I said, they're pretty unrelated, um, but they're all kind of topics I find interesting. Uh, One of them is about Opal Whiteley, who was uh, briefly an Oregon superstar in like 1920 and then uh, got run out of town. Uh, Film preservation, uh, mammoth ivory hunters in northwest Alaska. And tourism in Colombia and a kind of weird uh, pro-fascist movie made in the 30s called Gabriel Over the White House. So when you say mammoth ivory hunters, these aren't humongous hunters of ivory. These are hunters of mammoth ivory. Yes. So they're people um, in northwest Alaska who are finding uh, and looking for uh, 
mammoth ivory and mammoth bones that have been stuck in the permafrost for a very long time. Um, and they use them to make art, make jewelry, um, and all kinds of cool stuff. So, so you, you, we had ivory hunters, a couple film different. You, you, there's film is a theme here. Yeah. In your stories and then travel, it seems like Columbia and, oh no, I guess Columbia is just the one travel piece. Yeah, the Alaska one kind of is as well. Um, but yeah, if I had to narrow down the things I'm most interested in, uh, old movies and uh, travel probably is a pretty good synthesis of those. Okay, so then who is Opal Whiteley and how does that fit in? Uh, Opal is a strange character. Uh, so she was like a child savant um, in C Cottage Grove, which is just south of Eugene. Uh, and she wrote a diary that was published in the early 20s, and it was like a smash success. Uh, and then people accused her of uh, faking parts of the diary. And she also claimed to be uh, the abandoned daughter of a French prince. Uh, and then some people tried to disprove her, uh, disprove that claim. And so she was basically run out of the country. Um, and then she undertook this incredible journey to try to find proof that she was actually a French princess. Um, and she like ended up in India and in a convent in Austria and then kind of fell off the radar uh, and wasn't found for like 20 years. And then uh, during the London Blitz was found in like the rubble gathering all of these books on French history. And she was checked into an asylum uh, and died there in the 90s and lived for decades in this uh, mental asylum. Whoa. Yeah. yeah, she has a really <laughs> fascinating story. So tell us, um, so you write, you write nonfiction, right? So tell us, um, how then did you come across these disparate topics? Like, for example, Opal Whiteley, what was the genesis of writing about her? Uh, Opal, I just kind of stumbled upon. I was uh, looking for research on a Buster Keaton movie that was also filmed in Cottage Grove uh, around the time Opal was living there. Um, and as I was looking into this information and looking into this like small town, uh, some stuff about Opal kept popping up. Um, and I looked into it a little bit deeper and it, she's one of those people that as soon as you find, it's just like a rabbit hole of information and misinformation. And, uh, she quickly became more interesting than the Buster Keaton movie. So nice. And then what about, you said that there's also a piece on Columbia. What about that piece? What was the genesis of that? And what's the focus of that piece? Yeah, so I spent a couple of weeks in Colombia over the summer. Uh, and so this is about, uh, one, how Colombia has transformed from uh, a pretty dangerous place uh, to a pretty safe place to travel to now in a very short period of time, like within my lifetime. Uh, and it's also about how the legacy of Pablo Escobar is fueling tourism in Colombia and kind of troubles how that is both a good and a bad thing. So that sounds like almost the opposite of ecotourism. It's like tourism to go see <laughs> narco tourism. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, has there? I mean, I know narcos. The the show has come out and that's been very popular, but that's pretty new. Are there were there other events related to Pablo Escobar's like fame that that brought in tourism and and helped clean up the streets, or is it just kind of been a gradual? improvement in the situation there? Uh, well, he was killed in 93. Uh, 
So since then, Colombia um, has changed, changed pretty dramatically. Like Medellin, which was the city that Escobar pretty much ran, uh, is now, and it was the most dangerous city in the world for a while, uh, is now one of the safest cities in South America. Um, I don't know exactly when, I think Narcos may have been the genesis of a lot of interest in him. I played paintball at one of his abandoned mansions, and I think the picture... Uh, on the actual like flyer was a picture of Pablo Escobar from Narcos and not the real Pablo Escobar. Mm. Um, so I think that has fueled a lot of interest, at least uh, for people outside of Colombia. Mm. Was the paintball? How did you stumble upon that? And was it was it was it very busy? I'm just curious about the paintball scene and who thought, ooh, we should create a business out of this. Uh, there's a hostel and a kind of lakeside. Uh, it's like a resort town for Colombians, but there's uh, a hostel in that town that somehow got this deal to uh, they ferry you over for like the equivalent of five dollars and hand you some very high powered paintball guns. And there's like a set of games where someone's like designated as the team's Pablo Escobar and you have to defend him. Um, and it's in like his house. Uh that has, you know, no windows or anything anymore. But, um, yeah, I don't know the gen, I don't know who thought of that, but, uh, I mean, obviously it's pretty popular. I do. So it's kind of funny. They, they decided to make it into a paintball arena instead of like, keep it as a historical, I guess it's a really bad historical landmark. So it's nice to turn it into something fun. Yeah. There's two houses on this little Island. Um, and this, you play a few rounds of paintball and then you tour the other side. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, I was in it for the game, so <laughs> to be honest, so yeah, I don't know. Okay. So you, you're, you're doing this long form essay writing, but, and, and it seems like movies are a big interest to you. And we talked about travel also. Um, but if we, if we were to go back in time, when did your interest in these kinds of stories and, and, uh, writing start? Uh, well, I would say that uh, my mom definitely raised me to be a huge nerd, uh, so I'll blame a lot of that on her. Uh, like when I was a kid, uh, my mom made these flashcards for my brother and I that uh, had like iconic photographs, uh, pictures of important historical people or places or art, um, and she made a game out of like identifying what they were and then getting into more detail and connecting it to a map of the world. Uh, so I think I was always encouraged to uh, think about the world outside of what I knew and explore that as much as I could. Nice. And so you have this interest in the world outside of yourself. When did writing and storytelling come into play? Uh, kind of through my interest in movies. Uh, I really fell in love with uh, classic movies in maybe high school. Uh, and then I wanted to be a screenwriter for a long time, and that kind of got me interested in writing things. Uh, and through a series of like college major changes uh, in my undergrad, I ended up with uh, an English degree in creative writing. So uh, I don't know. I think maybe it just just fell into it. Just happened. And when you settled, you had a, some major changes, which yeah. I maybe perhaps would like you to name those. But before that, um, so when you were studying writing, creative writing as an undergraduate student, was it also nonfiction or were you 
writing in other genres. Like here at OSU, we have fiction and poetry and nonfiction. So how did that come to play? Yeah, so uh, the major required that you try all of them. I had a really awesome uh, nonfiction professor, though. Um, who I actually first met her in a poetry class um, and then took her nonfiction workshop, and she's just really a uh, cool lady um, who really inspired me to... Uh, I didn't. I didn't even know what long what nonfiction was, except for like, you know, the truth, you know. But I didn't really know what it was beyond <laughs> that. Uh, so I really liked her, and I kept taking her classes and got into it, um, kind of through that inspiration. I guess I'm wondering back a little bit. You said you got into old movies in high school. Did that just happen? How how does that happen? I'm curious. Did you just see a movie one time and? You loved it, and you continued down that genre. Uh, yeah, I got uh, really hooked on Turner Classic movies, uh, and because I am just naturally a nerd, I uh, would like watch a movie and then want to know everything about it and the world around uh, movies in the '40s and '50s. Uh, so, uh, I mean, it's just like. It's like my daily hobby is to Google like what was happening in the film world in 1930. You know, I think that's really fun. <laughs> so um, that's yeah, that's pretty cool, though. I mean, so it sounds like you kind of took a little bit of the movie stuff and then your interest in facts. And then that came into screenwriting and like slowly all these pieces mixed in together. And now you're here <laughs> and yeah. you, you are bringing all these, all these parts of your life from different times together. Is that like a fair assessment? Uh, I mean, when you say it like that, it makes sense. So yeah, <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs> you haven't done that kind of self-reflection though. <laughs> <laughs> no, it just, just happened. Um, no, but yeah, I guess they're all pretty, they're all kind of related um, in a roundabout way, I guess. Cool. Nice. So I'm thinking about when I think about popular nonfiction books or maybe essays that I read, a lot of them are sort of memoir style. So they're about a person's experience through something, some events that happened. How is the writing that you do? How does it maybe how is it the same in some ways and how is it different? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't categorize myself as a memoirist uh, really at all. Um so out of the five pieces in my thesis, for example, uh, I'm a character in uh, the Columbia one uh, and the Mammoth Hunter one. Um, but I try to use the first person narrator as a lens to view the bigger story. Um, and I'm not, I'm not too terribly interested in what my interpretation of that was or like myself as a character. Uh, Sometimes you just need an outside set of eyeballs, though, to work with. So I, sometimes my own eyes work for that. Um, but the other three uh, don't have a first-person narrator at all. Um, and I, I kind of always try to do that. Um, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Like the first few drafts of the Mammoth Hunter one uh, didn't have uh, myself in it at all. And then I realized that there were some things happening in it that needed uh, someone to interpret just to be easier to read. So I don't know if that answers the question. I don't write memoirs. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. I just think about people think about, you know, nonfiction is such a big umbrella. And so it's interesting to think about the different ways that it's divided up. So then because you don't write 
memoir are from the personal point of view as often. Um, what, what, uh, what, how does research factor into this? What does your research process look like? Uh, so for me, research is the fun part of it. Uh, that's the part I like to do. Uh, and it looks different for every project. Uh, like the Mammoth Project, um, most of the research was just uh, me hanging out with uh, one particular mammoth ivory hunter and getting information from him. Um, and then something like the like the fascist movie piece, uh, that is involved a lot of research into uh, all kinds of places. I've ended up in like the Roosevelt Presidential Library uh, looking up things from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences uh, database, uh, movie magazines from the time, uh, just kind of like general newspapers from the time and what was happening in the world when this movie was made. Uh, so it can go in any direction. Uh, but I think I'm like really in it for the research. That's the fun part for me. And then the writing is like a necessary evil. <laughs> so loving the research side of it, do you have some other stories that are kind of stewing and you have, you have some notes you've started on and some, some books you started to read? Yeah. Um, there's a project that I thought would end up in the thesis and it, um, just kind of didn't happen about, um, early, really early film company called the Thanhauser film company. Um, and it was based in upstate New York. Uh, and they were, they, made pretty popular movies uh, in like the tens and teens, like, like really early. Uh, and then they ended up destroying their entire collection um, around the, in the twenties ish. And the grandson of the studio owner now lives in Portland and he's trying to recover the family's lost movies. Um, and so I've interviewed him and researched the company quite a bit um, but it's maybe a bigger project than, than my thesis would allow. So. so is that the type of thing you'll work on over time and slowly put together? Or do you, for those that don't think about kind of long form writing and magazine writing, do you pitch that maybe to someone to try and get some support for it? How would you go about that? Uh, for that one, I think I'd have to think about what does that even look like ideally uh, when I'm done? Uh, is it maybe too big to be in a magazine or is there a way to get to the heart of the story that is within like 15 pages that could work? Um, so I think it takes a lot of time uh, for me sitting down and sketching out, uh, like sketching out a map of where it could end up and then seeing where to take it from there. So for those of you that are just tuning in or maybe missed the very beginning, the top of the hour, this is Inspiration Dissemination on 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. And we have Victoria Drexel on who writes magazine stories, to put it simply, uh, about a lot of different and very interesting topics. So old films and travel, we've kind of like narrowed it down to that um, in, a, in a broad umbrella. Um for for those of us who don't think about this kind of writing, kind of similar to the last question, what is what is the day-to-day -day like for a master's in fine arts student? Uh, well, I also teach writing 121, so there's some of that. Uh, so right now I'm only teaching one class, so uh, I have to get all the teacher things done, lesson planning and grading, and then my own classes. 
Uh, and then I have to find time to work on my thesis. So it gets a little busy. I would say typically uh, the actual like sitting down and typing words mostly happens over the weekend. And then the researching and organizing and planning how things will go and maybe rewriting as well uh, happens during the week. Uh, you know, when I can, when I can do it. Sometimes it happens like while my students are working on a reading response, I'm like quickly trying to sketch out an idea. So. And what about, um, so what is your relationship to research as you are drafting and revising a piece? Do you have a bunch of tabs open with your research? Um, can you work on multiple stories at once? How does, what does that look like in your office? Uh, for me, I have to do research and even early drafts by hand. Uh, if it's on the computer, uh, I find that hard to navigate. Uh, so I try to get a collection, do as much research as I can at the beginning so that I kind of know what all of my options are. Uh, and then I write down like a bunch of shorthand notes on a big piece of paper. Uh, and I keep that piece of paper next to me. And as I'm working on first drafts and uh, just sketching out plans, uh, I have that next to me and I can look to that. And it's kind of written in a shorthand that only I would understand uh, because I've already done all the research. Um, and I pull from there and see if it works. Uh, it usually doesn't for a while. Um, and then as far as working on more than one, two things at once, uh, I try to tackle it a draft at a time. So I'll finish a draft of something uh, and then either put that up to workshop in our workshop classes or send it to my thesis advisor uh, and pick something up, pick something different up in the meantime. Uh, and I don't know, I think that helps to keep moving a bit so that you don't get bogged down in one thing. What are some um, discoveries or failures you've encountered in your in, encountered in your research process? Things that you know don't work for you anymore as a writer and things that maybe do work. Um, figuring out that I couldn't do first drafts, uh, on the computer was kind of a painful realization. Uh, but in a first draft, you never know, uh, if what you're writing, like the last sentence you wrote, you don't know if that is going to be valuable. And so I would find myself like I was deleting things and then realizing three drafts later that I did want that sentence back. I just didn't want it where I had put it. And now I couldn't quite remember what it actually said, uh, so for me, if I have that on paper, then I can always like look back and I have it exactly and I haven't deleted it. Um, research, I had to figure out uh, how to organize in a way that made sense to me. I'm not a very organized person. So trying to force myself to like make a chart or uh, like an Excel file of some kind really didn't work. It made things like much more difficult. Uh, so I just do like a brain dump of all of the information I have uh, written in misspelled, terrible handwriting that only I could read. And that works for me. And I call that organization and it probably is not easily discernible to anyone else, but it works. So what, what happens then if you're writing your draft by hand, you yeah. write a sentence and you're like, no, I don't like that. But you've, you, you're doing this intentionally so you won't just delete that sentence. Yeah. Do you just go on and leave it as it is and you'll figure it out later? I just put a line through it and okay. then try again. Okay. Um, but if there's just a line through it, you can always pick it back up. But okay. if you've totally deleted it, then it's gone and you will inevitably need that four drafts from now. 
Okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's a funny, I, you know, I've been written by hand since, I don't know, cursive class in elementary school or something like that. And I feel like it's a forgotten thing. So do you, do you think it helps your creative juices to some extent to do it that way also, or is it the sentence thing is, um, I don't know. I, I know when I write things by hand, I have to start in, uh, like different parts of the page. Like I usually start writing in like the bottom right corner and part of that's just cause I'm left-handed and then I, you know, I don't like to write on like the rings of the binder, but, uh, then I like flip it upside down and write on the other bottom right hand thing. And so it's like trying to read it is just like, you have to turn it upside down. There's like you have to highlight like where certain things have like now just crawled into the margins of other things. I have a system that involves like lettering, like big A's and little A's. And then I like move the big A to the little A. It's like kind of a disaster, but as a fellow lefty, I can relate. I, I write in my notebook books backwards yeah. because I don't like the binder ring. It's a pain in the butt. Ringer. It's yeah. a travesty. It is. It yeah. really is. Don't do they not make left-handed, uh, Spiral ring binders. The whole world but, is right-handed. Steve. Oh, yeah. I know that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just more, like, hasn't there been a push? Aren't there like stores out there now? Yeah, th- I suppose the there Coast? are. I suppose there are. I I don't know. I haven't looked. I think I we've most lefties we create a system. Yeah, yeah. And I'm outnumbered. Today you are. Yes. Now you know uh, what it feels like. Yeah. Well, Victoria, I'm curious to hear. So, like any creative profession. Um, you know, being a visual artist or a performer or a writer, there are many ways to go about pursuing that field. So what led you to a graduate degree? What led you to coming to Oregon State University to pursue your MFA? Uh, well, I was out of college for about two years. Um, and when I, I applied to Oregon State, I was teaching English in South Korea. Uh, and I Applied to like 10 different schools. Oregon State seemed like a pretty friendly program. Um, and I think probably the fact that I was living in like a highly industrialized country made me like really want to be in a place with a lot of trees. Uh, <laughs> and that maybe influenced my decision a bit. Um, but I think having, I wanted time to work on this kind of stuff. And I think that's part of the value of an MFA is you have two years uh, where your writing projects are your focus, even if you're doing other things. And that doesn't happen in many other situations. Um, so, all right. So you've, do you, do you feel like being here, you, you mentioned you had the time to, to work on your writing is, is a big part of that. And I know a lot of writers talk about like a voice is like, is developing a voice become like a, a thing that you've, you've accomplished here. Or do you feel like you've just gotten a chance to work on projects you've wanted to work on? Uh, developing a voice. Uh, that's and a maybe good I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just throwing out terms that those of us that don't write hear about. No, I feel like I should know <laughs> if I have a voice. <laughs> um, uh, I think I think I've taken some classes that have really helped me hone research skills, and some that have been like uh, really practical for like how to go about pitching stuff to magazines. And then as far as like finding a voice and that sort of stuff. I think it changes for each project. So uh, maybe just having like a workshop class where you have to turn stuff in three times a term um, and then you get all of the opinions and thoughts of your peers. You get to hear what's working and what's not. So yeah, that's probably helped me 
develop a voice, although I don't know what that is, but it's probably there. Yeah. What about, what are some of your, your, you're finishing your program soon, you're graduating this June. What are some hopes uh, and plans for your writing in the future? Uh, I don't really know. Uh, I'm trying to think in the short term. My uh, hopes and plans for the future as far as I can think about them are to defend my thesis in May successfully. Uh, And then what happens with them after that, uh, I don't know. I have plans to travel a little bit and drink a lot of gin and tonics. So, (laughs) Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Um, If you can think about them in the long term or maybe just, you know, just make a guess as what you could, what what would you be doing 10 years? First thing you, you can think. 10 years from now? Yeah. Oh, man. It doesn't have to be right. Just like. I don't. I mean, if I could be like freelance uh, writing stuff for uh, magazines and maybe having a home base in a city I really liked, uh, and a whole lot of puppies, that would be great. <laughs> All sound like great goals. Uh, okay, so finally, before before we finish up, uh, so here at Inspiration Dissemination, we have a couple of traditions. The first of which is we like to ask our guests to um, think about some advice they might want to offer our listeners. So this could be advice that you might uh, give to a general audience or to perhaps yourself a few years ago when you were thinking about coming to graduate school. What advice do you have for us? Hmm. Uh, I don't know that I'm a wise enough sage to give advice, but I would say like just um, maybe put yourself in different situations where you can have as many experiences as you as you can possibly have so that you get an opportunity to explore what you're interested in and uh, maybe find what you're interested in. So look around a little bit, I guess. And our second tradition here is that you get to pick a song to play yourself out to. Yeah. To yeah, to get to play yourself out. Okay. And this was a, a little bit stressful for you, but we picked some good ones. <laughs> okay. A lot of good ones, I think. We have some potential candidates. Okay. Uh, I guess you don't know exactly which one I have queued up. I think I'm gonna love either one. Okay. Yeah. Do you wanna introduce uh whichever one you want and I will play that one? Okay, yeah. Let's go with Tom Petty, okay. American Girl from my home state of Florida. Uh great song. All right. Okay. That works. (laughs) Thanks, Victoria. Thank you.